This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, uh, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. I'm out in Festus, Missouri this morning with uh, Brandon and Denny of Main and Mill Brewing here in Festus. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Hey, Jamie. Happy to be here. We're going to talk about uh, you know some of their approach to brewing, uh, uh, making big stouts, uh, adjuncting stouts, and uh, some of the other things that uh, fun beers that they brew. Uh, but before we get started, as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and dedication to their customers' craft. G&D is committed to cold, whether you operate a brew pub or large-scale production brewery. Contact G&D Chillers today at 1-800-555-0973 or reach out online at gdchillers.com. Mention this podcast to receive up to $1,000 worth of glycol with the purchase of any new G&D Chiller. Uh, that includes you guys, right? You have one uh, on the way. You should... Uh... <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We've got one uh, ship supposed to be shipping like... Any day now, um, so we'll be contacting GND since we haven't received it. Maybe they can throw some glycol on the track. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Also, uh, let Tavor transport you to craft brewery bar stools all over the country and obliterate the geographical divide that prevents you from walking directly through the doors of any brew pub. Don't just read about life, drink it. Download the free Tavor app to get sought after independent craft beer delivered right to your door. Use code BREWING for $10 in cold, hard beer money. If you enjoy the podcast, you enjoy listening to it, and uh, you want to support what we do, uh, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the little subscribe button, and uh, subscribe to the magazine. It's uh, Think of it like a Patreon where we actually send you a copy of the magazine uh, you know, every two months. It's kind of a fun way to, to support what we do, um, you know, and it's uh, we have great perspectives, and uh, in fact, in the very next issue coming up, you'll see an article in print, a breakout brewer story on Main and Mill, and uh, so you don't want to miss that. Uh, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button, and support us. Uh, so yeah, Danny, Brandon, welcome to the podcast. Super happy to be here. Yeah, we're pretty avid listeners, so this is this is pretty crazy. And now you're on the hot seat. Give me a, a little bit of that uh, that you know quick arc as to how you got into doing this. Uh, what got you into to brewing, and then why you decided to start a brewery? How you ended up uh, here in, in Festus on uh, on the corner of Main and Mill, uh, which uh, gave you the <laughs> clearly gave you the name for this brewery, uh, and then why you've uh, started brewing what you do. Uh, so uh, I started brewing um, in before college, really, just home brewing. Uh, went into finance, loathed it. Uh, so I worked that in three years, and then started to uh, volunteer at a local brewery uh, just to see if it was something that I was interested in doing. Um, really wanted to have a brew pub, but didn't really. I don't really take in huge risks, even though this was a gigantic risk uh, where we're at in Festus. So I uh, went there, loved it. Didn't uh, there was nothing that kind of slowed me down on the idea that this is what I wanted to get done um, and started doing the business plan, started doing this. We bought a building, my dad and I did uh, in 2011, I think. Uh, just did a real quick three-year renovation. Um, <laughs> real, real quick. <laughs> yeah, real quick three-year renovation of an 1880s building, um, just basically because we were both naive and thought that this would be a pretty simple deal. Uh, turned out to be horrible, uh, but <laughs> the building turned out really nice. We've been really happy with it. The community's really proud of it. We're really proud of it. 
um, put in a small seven barrel brew house in a 385 square foot uh, brewery area Oof. with our uh, restaurant here and have been churning out. I think we did our 300th brew uh, just last week. So it's uh, it's been a it was a battle to get open and it's been real fun since. So that's where we're at. So, you know, t- 2011, you buy a building with this idea of, of launching a brewery, um, you know, it's in that ensuing three years of even renovating this building, the beer world changed quite a bit. Um, you know, how, you know, what that goal going in was what, you know, community brew pub, you know, typical brew pub model food, um, you know, and specific expectations of serving a local audience. Uh, how does that change, uh, you know, even in the three years before you actually opened your doors? Well, the main thing is when we did this, it was a community brew pub. The whole model was that we wanted to serve not only Festus, but uh, Crystal City, which is basically Festus. It's, I mean, it's the same basic city yeah. as Twin Cities, uh, the county in general. So we wanted to do that, and we had to know, we knew we wanted to do a restaurant or had to do a restaurant more, not wanted to, but had to, to make sure people came in and tried our beer because this, is a, this was AB country, big time here. We're south of sure. the metropolitan area. So we ended up doing that. Um, Got a lot of people on our light, our lighter beer, which is called Clyde's Ale from my my grandpa. Um, Clyde's Ale. Clyde's. His name right, was Clyde, right. so it's Clyde's N- Ale. No, no, Clyde's Dale. No Clyde's Dale. Okay, it's Clyde's okay. Ale. So we had that as kind of a, tricky. It's yeah, it's smart. A tribute to him. Um, Haven't been sued for that one yet. No, not yet. Not okay. yet. Maybe so, after this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now that people know about it more, um, but got a lot of people hooked on that. And then those people over this course of three years have gone from. Uh, that beer to navigating everything we do and are now pounding IPAs. So uh, the community's changed with us. Uh, we still bring in people that haven't been here and are trying our light beer and, and kind of opening up the, that mindset uh, for craft beer. But yeah, everything started off as a community brew pub environment, trying to um, basically, you know, have some place that people are proud of around here. I'm from Festus. I've grown up here. This I didn't want to open a place anywhere else but here. Uh, and so it's just really worked out uh, better than we could have ever hoped. And we just keep moving forward with uh, trying to change with the times. Like you were saying, things changed a lot in those three years we were, you know, we were doing this. But with a seven barrel system and a community brew pub, we can pretty much, we decide sometimes on a whim on what we're going to brew one day to the next. So we're able to pretty much move from one style to another or change things without really having any change in what we're, our whole business model is here. Yeah, you mentioned that this is AB country, and that was very apparent to me driving uh, you know, south out of downtown uh, St. Louis to to get here this morning, uh, right past that uh, gigantic uh, Anheuser Busch brewery. Um, you know, there are positives and negatives. I think in a state like Missouri, which is, is so um, dominated by uh, you know the world's largest brewer, um, positives include uh, they have done everything they can to lobby for the loosest possible laws around alcohol in general and so you can pretty much do whatever you want and you know and and, uh, you know because they've lobbied to make that possible um you know on the downside like you know there's a lot of brand loyalty and it's hard to get people you know who have grown up drinking anheuser-busch beer to even you know change and try new things how um you know how's your experience been operating a brewery in that kind of very very large shadow well, overall, um, when InBev took over AB, it was a giant shift in the landscape. They went from a lot of people were AB only and would never even consider coming in here because they felt like they were going to, you know, they're doing somebody a disservice that they weren't drinking AB products. But when InBev bought that, they laid off a ton of people and that whole uh, loyalty situation shifted. You've still got people that are, you know, hauling out cases of Natty Light, but, but a lot of it's because they don't want to spend more than twelve ninety nine for a 30 pack. 
whereas they still will go out and drink something else. They don't feel the loyalty to AB anymore, and that's allowed the 70-plus breweries, I think, in St. Louis to open uh, and really just flourish because that brand loyalty disappeared not only just then, but then as it went forward, it just keeps going worse. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing tying anybody to AB unless they work at AB currently. And, that, uh, and even the people that were working at AB, they don't drink that beer at all because they really felt like that they did a disservice to them and their family. And so I think it's changed everything here. The landscape is different. Um, and uh, craft beer is, you know, is basically latching onto that and creating yeah. new brand loyalties. You all, I mean, you're certainly more local now, right? You know, I guess you're of the communities and, and you're, you know, certainly well planted right here in the middle of, of your community and, and building beer that's relevant and local, um, you know, for your own audience. Um, that's interesting. Tell me a little bit about, um, you know, how you, you decided uh, uh, what to brew. You know, that uh, obviously if you're, you're a community brew pub, you're trying to brew a lot of different styles to satisfy, a, you know, a pretty wide audience. Um, but then you've also kind of, you know, taken a, a more specific uh, strain, uh, an approach that seems to be driven by a kind of broader, uh, you know, kind of St. Louis uh, metro market as well. Um, talk to me about how you uh, you got, you know, developed that and then uh, how you have kind of, uh, you know, built a, a way for those two different um, styles, you know, to kind of coexist. Yeah, I mean, really, so just servicing the tap room, uh, it gives us, you know, a lot of flexibility to, like Denny said, just kind of, kind of move on whims occasionally. Yeah, yeah. And we try not to do that as much as, you know, we try to plan things out a little bit, but plans never really, plans sure, are a, sure. a good skeleton usually for us. Um, so yeah, I mean, we've over the course of what, well, yeah, I think 300 brews, we've, uh, we pretty much rotate everything all the time. We have our, uh, Clyde's, which he said was, uh, that's our blonde ale. We have that one on all the time. Aside from that, we really can experiment. So, um, and you know, just the, uh, we tend to always have something hoppy, uh, you know, something on the lighter side, always a stout on all the time. Yeah. So, but within those different, um, realms, we, we just get to really experiment. So how do you, how do you, um, you know, how do you make a beer, a main and mill beer? Yeah, like what is it that gives it uh, a character that uh, tastes like you all? If we're going to get into stout territory, if we're ready to go there. Sure, sure. We can talk about stouts. <laughs> and and to, to preface that, I mean, you know, you all with uh, Carpathian beers and your Imperial, you know, uh, breakfast stout and others have kind of put out uh, some some big stouts to, you know, which seem to be a thing for St. Louis. Uh, you know, obviously Perennial and Side Project are well known for making big stouts. And uh, you all are, are playing in a pretty uh, deep pool with some, uh, you know, high performance, uh, you know, brewers and that kind of perspective, uh, which creates a lot of pressure to put out some fantastic beers if you're going to release them into a very competitive market like that. Um, why why go that direction and why, uh, you, know, uh, you know, make these beers? Well, I mean, to be honest, like from the get go, we never really like thought we would be in that pool, you know, like yeah. Denny was saying. I mean, this really was a project to kind of revitalize our community and, and kind of bring new life back into our community. And, uh, so yeah, like our first, um, stout release was a, uh, our breakfast stout. We did a, like a three variants of that. And that was back in like 2015, we bottled it with, uh, you know, Blickman beer guns and stuff like that. <laughs> and I mean, we just wanted sure, to, we sure. wanted to put something out just kind of yeah, for fun. Yeah, yeah. And it was, it was really, you know, it wasn't, uh, it was 
the scope was all local. Like we, right. even for that one. And then whenever that kind of took off, our next, whenever we, we managed to fit four barrels in this, pl- uh, this place, you know, where space is, you know, such a, a hot commodity. Um, we finally started releasing these barrel aged stouts and uh, yeah, the first, the first, uh, you know, like actual, like four wooden barrels <laughs> worth of stout were our first four releases and, uh, each one of them just took off. So, um, no blend, just the actual barrel, right? Well, there. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So I mean, getting into that, I guess, uh, yeah. the Carpathian was, was one of those barrels. Yeah, I mean, that yeah. tells you like our, how, uh, how, low volume we were sure, working sure. with and how like just by virtue of that low volume we didn't expect it to go anywhere you yeah. know it only got sold to our membership and um aside from that i mean so we have carpathian obviously is our uh like our non-adjunct um stout but aside from that i would say um what's characteristic about the way that we do things is we're constantly blending so um we never if we're going to do like the breakfast stout for instance or any any kind of coffee beer um we're always doing things on a small scale and scaling it up so we'll typically what we'll do is we'll infuse kegs of say like we have a cinnamon keg a coffee keg and we'll take that base beer and we'll take little you know uh, little beakers of each one of the blends and we'll scale it up by the milliliter and uh, do it that way and then scale it up so that way we're never actually throwing nibs or any of that stuff in the the total volume of beer and that's i mean that's just been a uh, a game changer for us when we started doing that for one we're not um i'm not having to try to fish out uh you know 40 pounds of nibs out of the bottom of a out of a tank um and we can really just dial things in exactly as we want them. So let me, let me, I'm curious about that. What you're saying is that you are, um, infusing ingredients outside of, you know, tanks, but then are you, so are you building a more concentrated than infusion and then blending that liquid uh, that's that's been pulled from the tank now back into the Mm -hmm. uh, the main tank and dialing it in. So, I mean, we'll, we'll have a, a keg that's, you know, either a half barrel or one barrel keg. That's, uh, just way too much chocolate. Yeah. And typically with that, we'll, with chocolate, we'll put all of it in because, I mean, way too much chocolate isn't really a, a necessarily a thing for some of these. Sure, sure. Um, some of the more um, uh, like cinnamon and coffee, you know, we're, we're dialing those in and, you know, uh, pretty specifically. Like, well, we've got little like one mil droppers and we're, we're scaling it up from there. So, um how then yeah. do you uh, add those into a keg that you'll then you know push back into a into a tank? Um, you know what's what does that mechanism look like of of dosing? <clears throat> well, we basically we've got these little Sabco brights that are just they've been a, a lifesaver for us. So we'll uh, they've just got a little port on the bottom. So we yeah. just basically treat it like a miniature bright tank. Sure. So we'll pump beer from the uh, the main bright into one of those, infuse it that way, and then we can kind of take samples off the infusion kegs. Um, and then scale it up and yeah, pump it back in. If there's liquid already in there, you know, how do you make sure that uh, as you're adding additional things that, uh, you know, there's no oxygen pickup or, or whatnot? Well, it's just like if we were, uh, and I mean, like I said, we, we purge all the lines. Like it, we yeah. just treat it like we're transferring from bright to bright. So it'd be the same thing on a large scale, you know. Um, yeah, we just, we're just really stringent with all that. 
Okay. We haven't had any issues with that so far. Um, how do you? So are you adding then? You're adding those ingredients before you load beer into it. I'm I'm still just trying to like oh, okay. picture this mechanics of how, yeah, so, how those ingredients <clears throat> get into this you know otherwise kind of sealed uh, you know little Sabco you know keg. Um, oh yeah yeah okay I see what you're saying yeah typically what I'll do is uh, I'll say I'm doing we'll take nibs for, sure, as an example sure. so I'll just um, load that keg up with nibs um, and make sure that they get. Uh, properly sanitized and everything right. and then just purge that tank yeah, uh, yeah yeah just like it would be like a recirc tank or something like that purge that and then um transfer from the main bride into there and yeah. let it infuse for however long depending on the ingredient and then um yeah transfer it back in the same way you know depending on what amount we decide that makes sense and i guess right <clears throat> what you transfer back can be based on you know how you know that ends up uh, uh tasting and you know with that uh, big and broader batch mm-hmm. um in that sense you have to have some kind of you know framework and idea for how much of some of these ingredients work within you know a, a 15 and a uh, you know gallon keg 15 and a half gallon keg um and then, you know, have you found that there is, you know, a point at which you don't get any more extraction out of those ingredients where, you know, because you're doing such a, a high intensity kind of infusion extraction process, you know, if we added an extra five pounds of coffee in there, it's just not going to, you know, pick up any more coffee in that kind of liquid. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, that's definitely the case. Um, but usually... Uh, you know, we're working with uh, with our finished stouts. You know, we're working in right now volumes that are like five or six barrels total. In, yeah. You know, in the bright, so it's really with the with coffee and all that stuff, we're pretty well at our mark with it. Like we, you know, sometimes we'll just have to infuse another keg. But yeah, um, yeah I mean, we we kind of. I guess that's true. You can do it <clears throat> twice, right? If uh, yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk about some of the ingredients, uh, you know, and some of your approach to that some more uh, in a second. But uh, first, Scott Fabricating is the craft industry's leading choice for packaging line automation, specializing in depalletizing, repalletizing, conveyance, rinsing, drying, fill detection, and date coating. Scafab has over 600 installations in breweries, wineries, and distilleries worldwide. With a reliable team of engineers dedicated to fast, reliable customer service, you can count on them to provide systems custom-tailored for your specific needs. Contact Scafab today at 970-403-8562 or reach out online at scafabricating.com. And be sure to tell them you heard it here on the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. Balancing barley and hops is your expertise, and for Clarion Lubricants, food-grade lubricants is theirs. The team at Clarion knows that when it comes to making great beer, you're the expert, and when it comes to supplying food-grade lubricants backed by service-oriented professionals, they're the experts. Clarion will work with you to create an efficient lubrication program that helps protect your brewery. To speak with an expert, dial one 855 myclarion That's 855 855- 6925274 or visit clarionlubricants.com clarion lubricants the expert that experts trust so a few years ago uh, a bottle randomly showed up at the at the office uh, of uh, Maina Mill you know imperial breakfast stout oak aged imperial breakfast stout and I'd never heard of the brewery and uh, you know 
as most things go, you have a skeptical approach. Okay, who are these guys? And uh, you know, so one afternoon, probably a Friday at you know four o'clock, we we keep alcohol consumption in the office limited to four p.m. or later, just so things don't get out of hand. You know, cracked it open like oh shit, this is a fantastic beer. Who are these guys and where'd they come from? Um, but I was really impressed by the quality of the ingredients and how the beer complemented and picked up and, and uh, you know, played a, you know, a cohesive whole together with all of those ingredients. Um, you know, some of that comes down to selection of things like coffee. Some of that comes down to how you integrate those, uh, you know, into the beer itself. But talk to me a little bit about how you think about coffee, how you select coffee, and how you build then stout recipes to work with and complement, uh, you know, the, the character of that coffee. So we specifically use Mississippi Mud Coffee Roasters out of St. Louis. Um, they've been great to us before we even started um, here. It was, we did home brewing, basically pilot brewing for three or four years before this. And so we partnered with them because we liked what they had. At the time, I didn't drink any coffee. So it was kind of uh, basically the only coffee we knew was based on what how well it treated it was in the beer. Um, so right now what we'll do is what we've done in the last handful of beers that use coffee, we've done a cuppings. They bring stuff down. They'll, they'll do it right there on a French press, and then we end up having it, and we taste it, and we kind of see how well it's going to integrate. Um, we already usually now, after how many times we've done stouts, we've got a pretty good idea of what we're kind of looking for yeah. when it comes to that sort of thing and kind of how we're going to treat it. Uh, and as far as other ingredients, not just coffees, but um, we have a pretty good approach as to which, you know, like which kind of cocoa nibs we like, which ones are more earthy, which ones are a little bit more roasty, which ones offer a little bit more fudginess. Um, and, and that's just based on the experience we've had, which is still pretty limited. I mean, we, yeah. we've only released maybe, I think, like 10 or 12, 15 beers, I think, that are big stouts. Uh, we'd still do it on a smaller scale here at the tap room, but it's on a a much lower, you know, ABV scale. We keep it kind of sessionable here uh, on what we have on tap. We rarely have our big stouts on tap here. Um, but And even your big stouts are still in that kind of 10 and a half range, not in that like 13 and 14, uh, you know, kind of monster range, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's really kind of just the limitations of the system that we're brewing on right now. <laughs> okay. Um, so, yeah, we always end up, you know, uh, hitting a little bit lower than what our target is on, on some of that stuff our system let's talk uh, you know you're about that coffee and you say you know you know what you like um you know you did also a series with a few different coffee varieties and then a blend of those coffee varieties what well, you know as you're as you're tasting through some of these coffees what are what are some of the characters that you really enjoy about that and what, what you know what some of these different coffees can bring uh you know to some of these stouts well, in the last one, we didn't do any, we've never done uh, a solo coffee series before. And this, that's what one thing Brandon and I like to do is kind of bring it down to a variable and mm-hmm. that variable is the only thing that changes. And so with this last one we did with our BA coffee series is the first one we've done with the cupping that we had, we had uh, the Guatemalan coffee was a, a lot more, uh, I guess you would consider it coffee in the idea of what coffee really is. The smell is, is potent. It was very yeah. roasty. It was really good. It was, uh, uh, had a lot of body to it, whereas that Guatemalan that we chose uh, was more fruity, kind of slightly acidic. Um, it's so totally different. We wanted to go two different routes so people could kind of get an idea of here's this exact same stout with, with this more traditional roasty, you know, full-bodied coffee, and here's one that's totally different with an entirely different uh, terroir of, of coffee. And then when we also looked at it and when we blended them together, when we cut when we cupped them, that they actually worked out really well together. So it was one of those things that just worked out that the idea of what we wanted to accomplish with both of them separate also worked together. And that's what we wanted to make sure happened. 
Uh, and it was it was a fun a fun first year of doing that, and we plan on doing it again, but with different entirely different beans. Um, with the idea of now we're getting, I think every year we do this, we're going to get a little bit better sense of what each area and country provides, uh, especially even just down to you know who's actually or providing it out of what area of say Ethiopia. So we're going to be moving more into that as we go, especially with the new location. We'll have a, a smaller pilot scale that's going to allow us to play with these type of things even more on a little bit more efficient basis. Is there uh, any kind of uh, guide to uh, the, the roast and the way that uh, your coffee provider is roasting these that you find produces uh, uh, you know, uh, more better extraction or, or better expression of the flavors that you're looking for? Well, yeah, they've been doing, uh, you know, just giving us test roasts for, I mean, the entire time we've been open. So we've really got to play with different roasts, different, um, you know, sourcing, like varietals of coffee and stuff. Right. Um, typically, I mean, it's it's hard for us to stray away. Personally, I think we like the, the darker roast stuff the best. Okay. Um, it always seems that, that uh, the espresso that we get from these guys, you know, um, it's it never comes off astringent it you know yeah. even if you use like way too much it never comes off oh. as astringent it just it's more like a chocolatey okay um and then i i tend to think that the lighter roasts might be where people get and well and then obviously with age too you know you get more of the green pepper and, and all yeah. that um so we try to stay darker with any of that stuff um and then really i mean you know if you're talking about the base beer too Anytime we're doing coffee, um, we dial it back as on roasted malt. So I mean, we'll have a little bit of chocolate malt in there, but mostly we want a really nice caramel backbone because we know we're going to get that uh, bitterness and that roastiness from the coffee. So we're just going to kind of make space for that in the base. Sure, beer. sure. Do you do, do you have a, a math for that or do you just kind of, you know, uh, make some you know mental considerations for how to dial that back? I mean, is there... You know, I, I've always been curious about that. Do you, you know, as a brewer, do you calculate the potential, you know, IBU contribution of, you know, that roast in the coffee and how that might impact, or uh, is it just kind of a, a feel deal? It's definitely a, a feel right now. Uh, just with our with our system, you know, it's this system right here, especially with these big stouts. It it never really. I mean, it's it's always a um, hard for us to get consistency with them, you know, yeah. and blending, uh, you know, helps rectify that too, just cause we have a lot of stouts to blend together and stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's kind of one what thing of, that we're, yeah, what kind of percentage impact would that have? Say, you know, you're envisioning this stout to, you know, have this coffee and this additional, you know, strong roast character. How, how much, you know, percentage wise would you pull back on, uh, you know, on some of the you know, heavier, uh, darker roasted malts? Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll drop them entirely really? typically like, okay. yeah, I'll, you know, with our typical base stout recipe, we will have a little, like maybe, um, we'll probably, I think we're looking at like maybe between pale chocolate and chocolate, 12 to 15% maybe. And then, um, roasted barley might be at like five or less. I'll drop the roasted barley. I'll drop the regular chocolate and just do the crisp pale chocolate, which is an amazing tasting malt. Yeah. Um, and just drop that back a little bit. We love uh, DRC. Simpsons DRC is incredible. Um, but yeah, and then for coffee too, we'll we'll use a lot of um, honey malt in our stout too. So yeah. I mean, we'll we'll just kind of get a full spectrum of caramel 
flavor and really get like a solid caramel backbone. So. That caramel piece is something that, you know, I guess a lot of folks don't really talk about or consider that much as being such a significant component. But uh, as we've kind of gone through the last two weeks, I've been stouted out as we work <laughs> on uh, the next issue of, of Craft Beer Brewing Magazine, which is our annual stout issue. Um, and I've, I've drunk over 200 different stouts, I think, in the last two weeks. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, that really it really struck me through that. Like there are, you know, that that kind of caramel toffee, uh, you know, uh, even kind of brittle, peanut brittle, you know, note um, is much more pervasive in these than I think a lot of, you know, folks typically want to kind of give it sensory credit for. Um, but that's interesting that, uh, you know, you, you build with that in mind in order to kind of counteract and balance against some of that roast. How also do you think about um, sweetness and residual sweetness and, and finishing gravity, uh, you know, in building a balance against those strong and roasty flavors? Oh, I mean, yeah, of course, quite a bit. Um, so one thing that we did uh, that was just a, it was probably like the craziest experiment we've ever done. We had a, we did a, um, we had our base barrel aged beer um, for, I don't even remember which release this was, uh, which, you know, after it was in the barrel and everything, it had a lower uh, finishing gravity than we would have liked. So we ended up, we, like I said, we're, we're always blending stuff. So we uh, brewed a beer specifically for blending that was just this ridiculously thick uh, milk stout. So it was super sweet, um, had a lot of body to it. Um, and we just, to be honest, we have kegs of that How downstairs. much lactose in that one? Oh, I, I honestly can't remember. It was, it, it's been yeah. about a year now, but. Okay. So, and in that, I mean, that is was just a really stressful watching that thing finish out and just just hoping <laughs> but um so i mean we'll we always if we but don't you hold on to that to blend back <clears throat> and uh, help build some body and some other beers yeah we're i mean we're down to our last couple kegs of it though so we're kind of uh freaking out about it now we got to try to do that again yeah um <laughs> but yeah i mean we'll we always uh if we're not hitting our finishing gravity we try to uh you know, back blend something like a, someone of one of our other thick stouts that we have on hand that we can blend back in. Um, and that's going to get a lot easier when we have this, uh, three barrel pilot too. So we can just basically, um, we'll always have, uh, beers like that, that we can work with. I mean, we, we just want to give ourselves options, room, room to work, you know, and some um, place to store them and hold on to it too, yeah, to, to have yeah, that definitely. stock. Sure, mm -hmm. sure. Um, you know what? What becomes that goal? Like, you know, how how are you? Are you? Uh, is there a kind of a gravity goal that you're you're looking for, and uh, um, or a kind of you know a way to kind of measure or think about the viscousness of these things? I mean, again, you're in St. Louis, and there's a certain expectation for these you know thick, dense, you know motor oil kind of strong legs hanging on to the side of the glass kind of stouts and so uh you know you you know to to make those right it poses its own challenge well overall it's kind of been interesting so when we did this initially we we just created a stout that we like to drink that was a, a nice ba stout i think it was the the one that we did out of the barrels first was ba breakfast um three years two years ago two and a half years ago um we didn't really have a goal of finishing gravity. It was like, here it comes out of the barrel. Let's let's do uh, let's treat it. Let's do what we want to do with it. Let's put it out. Uh, it went well. But since that time, when we were just like, well, this has a nice little body to it. It's a little bit more than what we're used to for most places. But it wasn't anything what it is even now. So it's it's been a it, 
I don't know, like its own thing, this body situation in stouts, uh, enough to where we just released the, this iteration of our BA breakfast and the finishing gravity on that, I think was like 1067. Okay. So 1067 big stout, if that was like three years ago, people would thought it was just basically syrup. Right. And now we put out a 1067 beer that we like to drink that we feel like, you know, you can drink without having to spit almost, um, not spit it out, but where you're just kind of like, wow, this is so thick. It's coating my mouth to an, to a new degree. Um, and it's interesting because the only the big the only complaint we ever get on it is that it's just a little too thin, <laughs> and it's still and it, granted we've put out yeah. thicker stouts than this we really have I mean we've sure. gone all the way up to 1080 on some of our stouts, um, and but we're still trying to find that happy median but where some people that you know a lot of the people in the industry don't say it's thin but then it's still be able to dr- be drinkable you know to where um, you can also enjoy it share it and not feel like you're just completely you know your eyes are blown back because it's just it essentially is just a few points away from Hershey's syrup. So, um, <laughs> you know, so we're trying to always try to figure that out. Right. But overall, I think the general gist of what we try to do is try to finish everything around the 1070 mark. Some other things finish lower, some of them finish higher. Uh, but overall, as long as we're striking the balance that we're looking for on the adjuncts that we're wanting to add and and really enjoy it and get to and drink it and say, hey, this is it. I mean, that's the main thing uh, for us is to have a finished product that we're proud of, that we like, that's not going to be also paper thin, but also, you know, try to not also have one that we back, uh, back thicken with some of our, our blend beers and it'd be, you know, beyond the scope of thickness just to say we're, you know, the thickest beer on the, on the market, which is not one of our goals. So, you know, that's, it's, you know, I think it's a kind of ongoing, um, you know, question and challenge between brewers and, and drinkers and audience and customers of those breweries. Um, you know, and I think that consumption mode also kind of feeds into that. You know, if you're talking about thickness, um, n- not a lot of folks want to drink an entire glass of a 1080, you know, imperial stout. But in the scope of, uh, you know, opening up uh, 20 bottles of beer with, you know, 10 friends at a bottle share, you know, absolutely, all of these things get uh, you, know, um, you know measured against each other, and so yeah, the thickest beer can sometimes quote unquote win. Um, you know, and, and so you know, it's strange then as a brewer to also have to consider that consumption mode. Like, is this a stout somebody's enjoying a pint of at the bar here at our pub? You know, because I want it to you know be a specific feel and, and weight. You know, and most brewers think about their beers in those terms and not necessarily. How do I make a beer so that one ounce of it is just going to like jump out, you know, amidst these other 19 beers as this one trader dude that's shifted across the country, you know, now shares it with, uh, you know, nine of uh, dudes that he met off the Internet. Um, you know, I mean, there there is, a, you know, some some different ways of even thinking about designing beers for those contexts. And that poses a challenge for you because, you know, at the same time, same beer is going to be consumed in both of those ways, probably. You know, some of your folks are going to drink an entire glass. Some of your folks are going to trade and share it in that kind of environment. Um, you know, and it's not just, a, I mean, I, I joke about the whole bottle share thing, but, you know, the same thing can uh, apply to judges in a competition. When you send that beer out to the Great American Beer Festival, you know, for judging, it's, it's wrapped up in flights of lots and lots of beers. And so what makes that one stand out is something that, you know, amidst a, you know, a crowded field that a judge might pull out is exceptional. And so oftentimes, you know, again, those, um, you know, those elements like that, that may feel undrinkable 
be, you know, you know, in the larger context, um, you know, uh, become that kind of thing that uh, that make them stand out in that environment. Well, that's what's really we've battled that since we started putting out these bottles. I mean, we've had that conversation and everything we've done here. So, yeah. what got us to where we're at, where we're actually have you know people know us now in California, which we never would have guessed, you know, three years ago. And right. what got us there was thick stouts. So, while we always want to play with that game and try to make sure that we up up the quality and up uh, however whatever people want, we want to provide that. But we also think about the taproom people that are coming in here and drinking a stout. So when we've had Imperial Stouts on in our tap room, it hasn't been what we put in bottles. It's been uh, a 1045 or a 1050 Imperial Stout. And then some people that are coming from across the country or from the region, they expect us to have what we have in bottles on tap. And we just we just haven't done that. I mean, we've done it on occasion. And whenever we have our member events, we'll put a, a big thick stout on tap on a keg because they that's what they know and they expect and they want right. to taste what's going to be in the bottle. Uh, but as far as like coming in and buying a, a pint of something, we haven't done that here because it's just that one isn't it's not conducive for the drinker at a tap room to take right. down 12 ounce, you know, 12 percent stout. Uh, but it's also just the way that we've approached things is that we try to cater to who's going to be drinking these things. And what we found from the get-go is that people aren't sitting at home solo doming one of our bottles, <laughs> which has happened. Uh, and I've gotten plenty of messages about it that, it, you know, about, hey, it's all great. And it's kind of all, you know, the grammar's all messed up and it looks like they did it right after they drank it, but uh, which is great. But most of them are in shares. And, yeah. and that's what we want to do is we want to make sure that the people that have our beer at shares talk to, about Maine and Mill to somebody else that's going to be at a share and they sure. find our bottles because that's what that's what runs the business, at a, you know, whenever we're putting out bottles. So. It's been a thing that we discuss every single time we put on something on tap or what we do in bottles always has a point and always has a goal. Uh, and that goal might change. But as of right now, that's always we always talk about it every single time. I think that's, you know, you, that's an interesting piece. And I want to get eventually back to talking about, uh, you know, some of your boil process and, and, you know, mash and how you deal that on a small system. But, but you know, you mentioned that these are kind of these stouts and these bottle stouts are kind of key to the business. Um, I mean, you're about 45 minutes south of downtown St. Louis. I mean, it's a drive for people to get out here, um, you know, and yet, you know, so having, you know, these beers that are make it worth the trip for, you know, that kind of Metro St. Louis audience has to be some of, uh, you know, the consideration for this. It's great to have, you know, in your, your tap room serves in the, in the, the brew pub serves its local audience. Uh, but it's also a nice business to be able to to move packaged beer at that kind of scale to a bigger audience, um, you know. And so you, to some degree, do uh, you know? How, I mean, how much of a percentage of your business is that packaged, uh, you know, bottle business? And and you know, do you really have to consider it for them? It's been growing significantly. Yeah. Uh, we've done more and more releases each year, uh, and that's uh, that's essentially why we bought the other building and are doing an expansion is yeah. to expand our barrels, expand. Um, all of our production, but mostly make it easier for us to make these beers where right now it's just not sustainable. The way that we right, do these right. things here, this system, like Brandon was saying, isn't made for what we're wanting to do. Um, we're not barrel aging here anymore. So, and we're not putting it in a truck and carrying it down with other barrels. We're having to transfer kegs down to another bill, uh, you know, area, go from keg to a barrel and then keep on doing these transfers. It's like a three day process. Yeesh. So yeah, it's, um, but as far as the overall business, it's this wasn't part of the model. Like yeah. our model was, you know, serve burgers and serve great beers and, and see where it leads us and have fun with it. And now that we're doing these big, uh, big bottle releases, yeah, it is a substantial amount. I mean, we're getting people from around uh, the nation, around the region come in that we never would have expected, that would never have stopped here in the, without having these bottle releases. 
So we're doing more and more on site now. Yeah. Uh, so then they know what to expect. So then instead of having it on tap, they're paying for a bottle and they're getting to sit and share it and enjoy it. So those are where we reserve those big thick things. And they know already have the, the brand knowledge of that right. bottle. Um, so it is something that we're catering to more and more. The membership that we had initially was basically a community membership to come in here and get a discount on pints right. and mug swag. Yeah, yeah it's like yeah. a mug club. And it was before we even opened, it was just local supporters. And that that's morphed into people from all over wanting to get a part of it because they want a part of our bottles. And that was something we hadn't seen before. So it's one of those things where you start a business, so you don't know what to expect. You have an idea of how to be successful. Right. You got a goal in mind, that goal changes, the goalpost shifts, and then now we're looking at it like, well, we got to make sure the tap room and the community is happy, but we also want to make sure that we keep doing what we're doing to, you know, allow for an expansion that's going to allow us to give benefits to our employees and start really uh, changing things the way we do at the brew pub uh, on an employee scale. You know, we'll have more resources to be able to offer more of those benefits and do more things uh, that we've been wanting to do since we started, but isn't isn't a capability of a, a small brew pub in Festus, Missouri without having you know a little bit more revenue driven ability to to make those things happen sure sure and a little bit more margin on some of those uh you know higher end products which uh you know certainly helps feed back into the business tell me a little bit about um you know some of that uh that stout brewing process uh you know what are i'm assuming you're you're brewing in kind of all malt beer longer boils um but what does that look like for you so uh, I think even from the, the first Imperial Stout we did, we I think we brewed one that was a single mash, and that was like our just a for tap, and then we quickly realized that uh, we needed to do party guile for all these. Okay. So each uh, each one we do um, two mashes, like fill the mash done twice, make our first runnings and second runnings cuts, um, and then you know depending on where. Depending on how the uh, how finicky the brew system is being that day, and yeah. then, I mean it's it's not. I don't, I don't mean to say that it's, it's finicky. You know, we just our our efficiency kind of tanks sometimes. Okay, with these. but um, as can be expected when yeah. you're brewing big stouts, sure. Um, so yeah, we make our cuts, and so all the first runnings from both mashes go into the kettle. The other ones go into a, one of our open fermenters, um, and that'll be a second runnings brew, which usually ends up around you know anywhere from depending on what we're doing, five to seven percent around there just from second runnings. And that's, I mean, huh. you know, basically all sparge right. at that point, um, which is a different challenge, too, because, you know, we got, uh, you know, occasionally some astringency to battle with on those. Yeah. Um, but so for our big stouts, yeah, I mean, it's it's all uh, first runnings and then we just boil the hell out of it. Um, two mashes, first runnings of both. You start boiling the first one and then... Yeah, so sometimes, uh, like, if since we're doing two mashes and just how involved that process is, the first runnings from the first mash will boil for, I mean, you know, hours and hours while we're running off the second beer, sure. mashing in the, um, you know, the, the second mash, and then waiting for that to mash and running off. That's that first runnings, provided it's not uh, boiling over like crazy. Right. Uh, we usually have that boiling the whole, you know, the, the whole time. And then boiling hours on top of that whenever the full volume's in the tank. Yeah. So um, that's essentially the process what's there. A full, what's a full boil schedule look like? Are we talking about eight hours? Um, yeah, I would. Well, I mean, it, it really depends on the, the runoff and everything, yeah. um, too. So, I mean, that's it's something that's it's never really 100 percent consistent um, just because you're I mean, it complicates the brew day to have two mashes like that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I would say. 
I don't know. I mean, I guess the the first runoff you're gonna boil for uh, the entirety of that that first mash. Um, so that's like another. That's probably like three hours or so before you get the 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 thing full again. Three or four hours, and then another maybe three hours on top of that. Yeah, you know, three or four. Sounds like a fun brew day. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, we never have a goal. Like the the one thing about these stouts is we don't have an an actual. We have a goal, but it doesn't have to be consistent to last year's because our versions are changing of every beer we do from year to year. So even though we have, you know, we do a recipe, it changes maybe small from one year to the next because we've made a little bit of changes or we, you know, we have a different uh, end goal in mind. We'll not necessarily, you know, have to boil down to a sci- to exact, right. you know, OG on this. So whenever it's, you know, boils for seven hours or whatever, and we take a, you know, a gravity reading and it's, it's around where we're kind of hoping for it. We're good with that as opposed to saying, Hey, we're really wanting to get a 1.150 starting gravity on this. And we're 1.0, you know, 1.142 or 1.670 or whatever. We, uh, we just run with it. I mean, it's, it's, that's a, we've always said that's the convenience of a brew pub is that consistency from beer to beer outside of our Clydesdale is uh, more, you know, just trying to perfect things. And that's kind of the same thing with the stouts. We make adjustments on the fly and, and run with it. I like this idea of uh, maximizing, you know, your efficiency as a small brew pub and getting two beers out of some of these big, uh, you know, I think because you have a small system, you can kind of make that happen and it makes sense, you know, having a seven barrel small beer or, or slightly less depending on what you're getting, you know, um, works within this kind of context, larger production brewery brewing on a 15 or 20 barrel system may not be able to sell that much, uh, or, you know, two batches worth of a, a small stout like that. Um, you know, but for you all, I mean, given that, that, you know, the length of that brew day, it makes sense to get more than one beer out of that kind of thing. Uh, but you mentioned the astringency issue. How do you, uh, you know, with those small, you know, small stouts that come out of this kind of partigial process, um, you know, how do you then, um, you know, make sure that those are, uh, you know, meeting the expectation for, uh, you know, what you want in a stout? Well, uh, I mean, typically with the, the stouts, I mean, sometimes we'll have an astringency issue. It's it's more um, like, say, if we, and we've, we don't do these very often, but like barley wines or any other imperial beer like that, where we'll do the, the same process. Any lighter beers will definitely get an astringency. But um, yeah, with, with some stouts, we've noticed that they're, yeah, I mean, they, they just, they tend to dry out a little bit more. And, you know, when you're working with the roasted malt like that, and it's, it's basically, you know, majority of it's sparge, um, sparge water. It's you sometimes do get some astringency or and extra malt tannin or yeah. So yeah, basically like a tannic character. Um, but I mean, even that said, we could still probably run a third beer off some of these mashes. Like I think the last one I did, the, the last runnings were still in like the 1040s, which is incredible. I mean, for, if we had tank space, I totally would, it'd probably be super astringent, but um, those tend to be adjunct beers, depending on, I mean, if they're, if they're <laughs> going to be, we're expected yeah. to go on this. Sure. Sure. So, uh, you know, I mean, um, whenever I'm talking astringency from those, it's nothing like that. A little vanilla can't, uh, smooth out or chocolate, you know, yeah. which is usually the direction that we would be going with those beers anyway. You know, we, uh, f- something that's, uh, just for in the tap room, we rarely have like a non adjunct uh, base stout on you know it's just uh it's we try to keep it a little bit more exciting than that for some of our i mean not to say that i wouldn't like to drink those but you know you got to look out for the uh, people coming in to have a pint so 
No, it makes sense. You know, that, that there's, you know, there's a romance to flavor that I think sells a lot of craft beer. And, uh, you know, one of the things, you know, I mean, consumers enjoy about that are those touchstone flavors that they're familiar with. And, you know, certainly the idea of getting, you know, coffee and cinnamon and maple syrup or whatever else, you know, in a, uh, you know, a beer like that kind of makes it feel comfortable and gives them, uh, um, you know, it just sounds delicious. And it also kind of makes something jump off of a menu because, you know, you're mentioning flavors that people are familiar with and that they understand what those are, what those taste like. And, you know, it helps them build a mental connection with it, especially if they're not a hardcore craft beer person, you know, I mean, imagine telling somebody that this is a Russian Imperial stout and like, they have no idea what that means. It's like, it's big and bold and bitter. Well, that sounds terrible. (laughs) You know, like, I mean, I mean, just objectively speaking, like we know what that means. We know how rich and delicious that might be. But you know, if you're not a craft beer person, like you see some of these descriptions like that, just like, I mean, are you, have you read this? It sounds gross, you know, but then you start talking about those even in small amounts in a small stat like that, you know, the, the rich cinnamon and chocolate, you know, those sound great, you know, and, and they, they just, go a long way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's the classic thing that you, you talk about a lot on the podcast. That's just, uh, the style, uh, styles are basically a branding, you know, um, like ESB. We've had several ESBs on here. You'll never get them to sell. If it has bitter in the name, there's people aren't ready for that here. You know, nobody, you know, nobody will drink an ESB here. So you name them something else. Yeah. Yeah. We did that name, did the exact same beer that we loved. The ESB loved it. It turned out great. It was one of our early beers. We, when we did it again, we just named it English pale and it sold three times faster. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's the same exact beer. And then we, then we named it after uh, our rocket club here won like the world championships of rockets uh, for the high school division or something. It was awesome. So we named it after their rocket, Steamy Gore Machine. We just called it Steamy Gore Machine because, like, a which isn't you know, an enticing name. No, like, no but, but it was an ode to to you know congratulate them for a, a huge achievement. And then it sold even six times faster than what it was, and it was the same beer. So it's been it's been fun on all that stuff and how and how uh, just a name and what it's and how it reads is or even a label changes everything you do. Um, and you know what we were talking about just a second ago is like the about the session stouts like session stouts haven't really been a thing too much uh around here that's one of our biggest things is that uh, especially from the get-go we wanted to take what the flavors and try to make a mimic uh imperial stouts like uh, adjunct stouts and mimic them and make them something you can sit and actually enjoy like a pint or two of and so that's a that's one of the big things we really like doing is trying to do uh, you know, not necessarily super thick, but finished gravity like 1040 and like a 6% yeah. stout or even a 4% stout. We have a morning session stout that's essentially our uh, breakfast stout, but 4%. And we like doing all that. So these secondary, these second running stouts work out really well. And then we actually will end up, you know, we still blend in, say, imperial stout into it to change that, that tannic feel or that astringency to totally remove it before we start treating it. So we get that mouthfeel that we want. We get the idea of what we're wanting to go for. We do... Um, a base like a small Jeforia beer called Little Jeforia, oddly enough. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and that's, uh, we've done a lot of beers with Lil in it because of Lil Sebastian, I think, off of uh, Parks and Rec. <laughs> but uh, so, but either way, that, that's a big thing we're doing. And we're wanting, with this expansion, when we get a canning line, we're really wanting to still move into those session stouts and make yeah. it, uh, you know, have a lot of nuance in these things to where people can blow your mind that, hey, I can actually enjoy this and, and not have to feel like I'm going to get loaded off of four ounces of a 16% Imperial Stout. So, it's uh, it makes it a lot of fun for us. 
shameless plug you shared a recipe for a session stout uh, to to go along with the breakout brewer story in the next issue of craft beer and brewing magazine so if you want to make one of uh yeah amina mills recipes for a session stout pick up the next issue okay plug plug off <laughs> um you just mentioned jeforia and that is an interesting beer uh, that uh, you sent us a little while back um so intense in peanut fa- uh, flavor and character talk to me about using peanuts peanut flour and uh, or whatever other method you use in order to kind of build that intensity but also that kind of grounded and earthy character that comes out of peanuts so when we started doing that beer, we decided that we, we worked on a, like a nutty mash profile. So all of our uh, big imperial stouts, every one of our, the, we don't have a base stout. We, don't, we just don't do the same beer for every single imperial stout that we're going to do. And then let's say, let's treat it differently at the end. Yeah. Um, we have an end goal in mind. So that end goal on that one is to create like a nutty profile with victory malt and some of the other nutty malts we have. We use a lot of Maris Otter and try to kind of coax some of that in. It doesn't taste like peanuts. But it adds that a little bit of that sure, nutty base. Sure. Uh, we use PB2. Some of the times we've moved in the PB2 that has cocoa already in it because it just seems like it's a little bit smoother. Um, we do that in the whirlpool. We've done it in the tank. We've kind of kind of navigated those, both of those things. Um, and then so we get a lot of a lot of nice peanut butter flavor out of what we're already doing. And then that aroma we use. A, we found a really. Na- I mean, I it is what it is, but. We use a natural extract for the aroma because I don't care who it is. It's very hard to get like a peanut butter aroma out of anything that has peanut butter in it. You, I mean, you can smell a, gif, a, a thing of peanut butter and you get a little bit, but it's not. It's mostly like a little bit of salty, a little bit of peanuts, but that's about it. Um, but it's still that, that aroma is a huge key. And so right. we found we went through and just like some of our other stuff. We've gone through a million different extracts, and there's maybe basically like a handful of ones that we think actually benefit beer. Uh, most of them are terrible, and most of them taste extracty. Uh, but and we don't put extracts in a lot of our beers. We just don't. But if they, if it make we feel like it does something for the aroma, that's we'll move that direction. And that's one of those beers that we have done that for the aroma, and it's uh, it's been a big hit since. Yeah, you know, I mean, obviously. You know, there are different biased opinions around, you know, extracts. I don't necessarily think uh, it should be a a bad word in the world of brewing. Um, It's another tool that has a place. And, of course, there's differing qualities to those kinds of things. Um, I will say that in talking to brewers privately, there are a lot more that are using extracts as a component of an overall, you know, mix, like you say, to achieve certain things, making an aroma pop, um, you know, and there are plenty of brewers that are using, say, you know, some natural vanilla extract in addition to actual vanilla beans in order to kind of, again, push those kinds of things over the top. Um, anybody brewing with maple syrup is probably using some sort of extract, again, to push that kind of maple syrup nose just because, you know, that maple syrup flavor tends to, to die off, uh, you know, uh, through that kind of fermentation process. Um, you know, and so used well, used deftly, you know, they're not bad things. Some, no one should be ashamed of those kinds of things. Um, but it is strange that you almost feel like you have to apologize. Yeah. (laughs) It's, it's, it's like, you know, that is, it's really, it's a contentious thing. And, and we, we actually even talked about it beforehand, you know, like, should we even, cause, but at the same time, it's, it's very few of them that we found of, of things that really do push that and don't. Uh, if you can taste that it's an extract, it's not something we would ever even consider putting in small amounts in our beer. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could say that the peanut butter, anybody that smells peanut butter and then smells that would know that we have probably have an extract in there to boost the nose. That, I guess, technically would be extracty, but it's what pushes 
some of the aroma that we were looking for initially. We didn't expect that beer to just totally blow up like it did, um, but we made it to where we enjoyed it and that was what made us think it was more enjoyable. And so that's what we do with a lot of beers on tap or anything else. Um, however, we gotta do it. If we gotta buy more fruit, we buy more fruit. But if yeah. there's something out there that, that pushes an envelope that we couldn't get otherwise just naturally, if we want to find something that's fantastic, uh, yeah, well, we, we want to use as many paintbrushes as we can to create the picture that we're looking for. Yeah. Are you willing to talk about uh, what it is that you use in there, or is that uh, still a trade secret? Um, I th there's, uh, I think. <laughs> it's the uncomfortable it's moment. It's the uncomfortable <laughs> moment because it's. There's, and, and either is fine. I, you it, know, I just feel like I have to ask. Well, there's, we've gone through so many things. Sure, uh, sure. No, to and that's, go a, yeah, that's a process of, of learning that you all have gone through. Sure. Yeah. And so it's, I, I would, I'm not, a, I don't really want to say, yes, let's go ahead and throw it all out there. Like throw out a recipe and, sure, and do all sure. that because it's one of our biggest brands now. And that's Fair not enough. something we expected. Fair so enough. yeah. Are, are there any other uh, interesting uh, kind of adjunct ingredients that you've worked with uh, that you've, uh, that, that hit you in unexpected ways or that you've discovered some, uh, some interesting, uh, you know, things about in your process of using them? <laughs> how, about, uh, how about banana? I mean, I know you made a banana variant of uh, of that, uh, you know, peanut beer. The uh, what is it, Fat Elvis? Yeah, that was an interesting one. Um, banana stouts are so hot right now. Yeah, so I've actually got um, another second runnings beer in tank that uh, we fermented with SO4, um, and it has a just a tremendous banana nose too. So that's we're probably going to play off that. So I mean, you know, we, we'll play off what we have in the base beer um to start with you know um but yeah that one basically we we bought all the uh um like you know freeze-dried bananas we could find and they were just terrible and starchy yeah they had no sweetness they had no banana flavor they just tasted like potato chips um so we went to the store pretty much every day for a, a week or so buying out all of the, the day old kind of like brown bananas. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, Definitely and, the best flavor in those. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, we were working with a beer that already has that little, like almost like a banana candy uh, uh, yeast ester to it or, you yeah. know, phenolic to it. Um, and it, uh, <laughs> I basically pasteurized all these bananas and, you know, like uh, blended them up with a, an immersion blender just over the course of a week and dumped them in tank and just tried to get as much as we could out of that. And, and so, I mean, it's working with whatever ingredients we we can source, you know, which for a, a small brew pub, I mean, it's it's kind of difficult to source some of these things. I mean, now it's we're figuring out how to yeah. where to get some of these things. But usually it's uh, running down to the store and seeing what we can work with. Pasteurizing day-old banana puree sounds like a <laughs> huge pain in the ass. I mean, how, how do you even do that? Uh, we were basically, I just basically pureed them in boiling water. Okay. Um, and then uh, let that cool for, <laughs> for a little bit, dumped it in, and uh, just over the course of, yeah, about a week. And, yeah, I, I have to say I'm not going to do that again. We've uh, we've uh, <laughs> figured out how to, um, or we figured out just from doing some of these collaborations how other people are using ingredients, too. Um, and they, they've uh, definitely given us some, some pointers on especially yeah that one which we haven't uh had a chance yet uh to revisit the the whole banana 
uh, issue, but yeah. um, <laughs> we'll see how that goes. There's probably, I guess, a little cook element to it too. Then, if you're, yeah. uh, you know, if you're putting that banana here, and I imagine that uh, you know that fruit under that kind of heat actually probably has a little caramelization effect, and uh, definitely it's probably a little positive. Yeah, I mean, it, it basically was like it tasted like banana pudding whenever I dumped it in. So it was it was definitely a, a positive flavor to work with. That sounds delicious. <clears throat> so uh, so what's next on the on the radar for Maine and Mill? Um, you mentioned you've got a new new facility, uh, another building, the three barrel system, and then you start talking you start talking about canning. Um, are there more production plans uh, in the works for Maine and Mill? Uh, yeah, so we we have a building that's a lot bigger than what we were really needing probably, but yeah. it worked out really well for us. Um, we've and got it's only a few doors down, right? Or yeah, it's uh, it's less than two blocks. Yeah. So and it's on the same side of our main street. It bookends our main street actually with this building, uh, which has worked out great. Uh, we've put a lot of inroads into helping Main Street, you know, rejuvenate uh, and move it forward. We're here on Main Street, and you can hear the uh, the fire trucks <laughs> three four right times now. a day, every day, every day. It's. Uh, but no, so we, we moved, we're getting um, getting a 20 barrel system down there with a three yeah. barrel attached pilot uh, with the idea that, and the only reason we got a 20 barrel honestly was to our half batches. If we did 10 barrel batches, is that the size we're looking for for half batches? We ended up getting uh, two kettles so we could do our party guile still down there, keep it in a much shorter brew day where we can run off one, run off the other, boil them simultaneously, knock them out one after another. Um, so everything we're doing down there is on the idea of efficiency, making things easier, uh, doing a lot of barrels. We're gonna have a tap room down there. That'll be more of a kind of an industrial feel as like here is more of a family environment. Um, so we're kind of trying to, uh, branch off and almost do, you know, what you see more in metropolitan areas and allow us to do what we like to do on an easier scale. We'll have a little lab, but, uh, and we'll have a canning line. So we're going to be doing session stouts that we were talking about some IPAs, uh, fruit beers, all that, canning them, doing probably releases at least once a month of, you know, a handful of like three or four cans, uh, probably a non-BA bottle and a BA bottle, depending on what our membership goes through and what we're doing with that. But that's kind of the plan. And then try to drag people from around the region and around St. Louis for one day a month instead of trying to do a new can every week. So, um, but the base goal is we're going to have still have fun I like with that. it. I mean, it's, it's, that's an interesting idea that, uh, and, and, and I, you know, it's something that uh, we do see breweries that are a little out of, uh, you know, that kind of main urban area do more often, making sure that you're focusing your releases so that it's worth the drive for somebody that's coming out like that, you know, piling a few different can releases or bottle releases on top of each other so that it's like, okay, we know that person's going to make this trip one time they're not going to make it every week but they will make that trip you know once a month and, and i think it's almost the treehouse you know model to that extent when as i was i was talking to some of those guys uh, last year while up there they mentioned like you know they you know, like you know how we're gonna have enough business to support this larger brewery but as they looked at it if, if people could come and get a couple of cases of beer all at once they'd come once a month and that you know in turn widened the radius of of their potential audience from that kind of one hour radius around the brewery to about you know a three hour uh, radius uh, which then put them into a, a humongous you know much larger market and that's an interesting idea that you know again building a product strategy that kind of creates a more destination feel for you and that's that's a big part of our goal here i mean here we always just said hey the people from festus and jefferson county are going to make this place fly and that's what we're going to do and now with down there that's not the case at all i mean yeah we'll have a bunch of people from this area come in and buy cases or cans or a bottle here and there 
but that's not why we're doing that. It's mostly to make our lives a little easier, but then we also want to cater to the people that have been coming here regionally. And to do that, we just feel like once a month is good. So we, we're getting a bigger cooler than we probably would need for the lack of distribution that we're probably going to be doing. So we can store cold things for a couple of weeks and make sure they're as fresh as possible whenever yeah. we do sell them. So we've got, we've factored all of that in with the idea that this is how we're going to move forward um, with the beers that we're wanting to create at the new location. Yeah. Well, cool. I can't wait to see what you guys come up with. Um, Brandon, uh, Brandon Bischoff, Denny Foster, Main and Miller Brewing Company. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. That was great. Thanks yeah, a bunch. Thank you. If, uh, if people want to learn more about Main and Mill, where do they find you all? Uh, Main and Mill Brew on Facebook. You can uh, get us on Instagram at Main and Mill Brew as well and on Twitter. So, And then we actually, with the new place, we have it branded as Main and Mill Barrel Works. Um, so you can find that on all of those things as well. And uh, yeah. Cool, cool. Uh, before we get out of here, I want to say thank you to our sponsors, uh, G&D Chillers, uh, Tavor, uh, Scott Fabricating, and, uh, of course, Clarion Lubricants. Uh, as I said at the top of the podcast, if you like what we're doing, uh, go to the beerandbrewing.com uh, website, click on that little subscribe button, become a magazine subscriber, and get to read stories about Mana Mill and that Session Stout recipe that's going to be in the next issue. Um, cool. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Cheers, guys. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. For those that love to make and drink great beer, learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.com.